FMX Network Production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I want to say. You know a new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's industry seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires and brought to you by Blendsall, Plum Creek Funding, Works Connection, and Fly Racing. It is Sunday, and that means it's time for industry seating. I am your host, Jason Thomas, and I have survived another week. No, we don't have dirt bike racing yet, but there is a sign that it's around the corner, if you believe that those with the power to do so are going to allow it. Uh, You hear all kinds of conflicting reports these days, and we even had a tentative date of May 17th that has been pushed. So... Uh, there was a time when I believed we would be racing two weeks from today that has since been pushed, which we will get into a little bit. want to thank all the sponsors that make this podcast possible. And I'll get into that a little bit later as far as in depth, but Pirelli works connection, Plum Creek funding, Blenzol oils, premier vapor blasting of Georgia and fly racing. So let's talk about this situation a little bit, and we've kind of been updating it week to week as this is all a pretty fluid situation. Uh, obviously, we're just following along. We're not decision makers, and I think Feld and the teams have some say in it, but let's be real. The the legislators in each state and across the country at the federal government as well have more say than anyone else. They're following uh, protocols and guidelines. They're watching the spikes in COVID-19 cases and making decisions accordingly. Every day we wake up, that picture looks a little bit better or worse. Uh, You know, luckily now with the latest plan, it looks like we're going to go racing on May 31st. So we have nearly another month to let the world heal a little bit. Uh, but there are still a lot of questions as to where this is going to be. I, I was almost positive this was going to be in Glendale, Arizona, and, and that's still probably the most likely landing spot. But I do know there is a backup location of Houston, Texas, and I've heard, I don't know how true this is, I've heard that there's a third backup location of Las Vegas. So I don't know on that last one, but I, I do know from several sources that Glendale is the most likely, then Houston would be a backup in case that falls through. And then Vegas seems to be floated out there as well. Now to do that on May 31st, the protocol to go racing I've heard is very extensive. Uh, Just an endless amount of boxes that have to be checked as far as safety and precautionary, which it all makes sense. Uh, you know, everything from masks to gloves, uh, social distancing, a hard cap, which I, I heard was a thousand people would be allowed at the event. And, and that will be soaked up by riders, mechanics, team personnel. I would assume some sort of journalism, obviously all the Feld staff, uh, NBC sports staff. I'm hoping I make the cut in that 1000. I have no idea. That's not my call to make. If I'm allowed to go, I would love to. 
but we'll see. Um, even if I'm, if I make that list, uh, but that's just, those are just some of the, the things I'm hearing. And I, I've heard that list is growing by the day because obviously they want people to stay safe. That's first and foremost, but obviously you have to think about the, uh, just the liability side, right? There's a lot that goes into something like this. If we are one of the first events to go back racing or to even pr- back to participation and people get sick because of this event, that's a scary situation with liability. So they're going to do everything they possibly can to protect us and protect themselves. And, and when I say themselves, I mean everybody from NBC to Feld to uh, State Farm Stadium to just everybody that could possibly touch this AMA. Um, anybody that would be attached to it has to just be careful for lots of reasons. So I'm hopeful. I don't know if I'm, I don't know where I land on it. I guess I'm, I was at 40%. If you listen to the fly racing racer X podcast, we did uh, a week or two ago, myself, Jason Wygan, Steve Mathis, I put myself at 40%. Steve Mathis put himself at 41%. And I can't remember where we said, did we say 60? Um, but I do know I was 40%. I think I'm a little higher than that now. Um, I don't know if I'm over 50 yet. I would say maybe maybe 49, maybe 50. It's all semantics anyway, but I think it's more likely. Uh, I know the teams and riders are, they're acting as if it's a go. They're way deep in their training and preparation again because they basically have to, whether this happens or doesn't, they have to be ready in every capacity if it does. And if it doesn't, that's a bummer and that's a lot of wasted work, but what other choice do they have, right? So that plan would be to finish all seven rounds. As we mentioned, uh, I have not seen how that would all play out, but I, I do know it would be multiple rounds per week. So if you figure May 31st is a Sunday, uh, I would bet you it's something like Sunday, Friday, Sunday, Friday, you know, for a couple of weeks. And then maybe they try to squeak in a third one, uh, somewhere in there to, to try to get all seven in. I don't know how that looks. I'm sure they've revised it a million times, you know, from when it was May 17th to May 31st. Uh, Obviously, MX Sports had to respond in kind. I I know there were some conversations had there and some difficult conversations because anytime the Supercross schedule moves back or is pushed back, that negatively affects Lucas Oil Pro Motocross and their schedule, right? So, you know, a week or two ago, Lucas Oil Pro Motocross was planning on going racing at the latest on June 20th at High Point in Pennsylvania. That that was the plan. And that was almost like, I don't want to say drop dead date because that would be false, but they really didn't want to go past that. Uh, the series was scheduled to start at June 13th at WW Ranch in Florida, but I kept hearing that it was unlikely that that would happen uh, between Supercross needing more time and just difficulties going on with the virus. Uh, it sounded like they weren't going to be able to start that early. That's already come to fruition as MX Sports released. Their schedule is now pushed back to Ju- July 4th. So that's a pretty cool consolation prize, I think. If you're if you're Red Bud and you're the Richie family, which I, I really like those guys on a personal level and, and respect everything that they do professionally, they're going to be the opening round of Lucas Oil Pro Motocross this year on America's birthday, which happens to be on race day, which is pretty cool, 4th of July. So I think I may have to venture myself over to uh, Buchanan, Michigan this summer 
and uh, kick off this outdoor series. So that's the plan. That the release does say that the series will wrap tentatively October 3rd. And keep in mind that all of this is tentative on Supercross and what they have to do. So, so far, there's been a lot of cooperation between both sides. Uh, Feld Entertainment and MX Sports have really worked hand-in-hand to try to accommodate each other. And that's been really refreshing to see. I don't know how you could do it otherwise, because if they really disagreed on how this should go and they were just like, nope, we're going to run, you got to decide what you have to do, we're going to do what we have to do, man, that would be just, it would be chaos and, and everyone would lose, I believe, if you made teams and riders choose which series they were going to attend. I don't see how that would turn out well for anyone. So I applaud both sides for working together, even as painful as it's been. Listen, that could, this can't be fun for anybody, right? Um, you know, Hangtown and, and the dirt diggers there that put on that event already had to cancel. And that, that hurts. That's a really popular event. It's really well run. Uh, I have been involved with that series, you know, ever since Fly Racing came on board as a, a sponsor of the series back in 2015. We've worked very closely with the dirt diggers to do everything we can for a successful round there and to see them have to cancel early and keep in mind, they were on, they're on state land, right? So there was basically zero chance of them being able to run their event in May. And I think at that point they just said, listen, this is this whole coronavirus. We're in the state of California, which if you've been watching the news lately, you can see that's a whole different ball of wax being in California. Uh, they just saw the writing on the wall that nothing good was going to come from this and they bowed out. Um, so yeah, it's been, you know, we're down to 11 events already and it's been a lot of moving parts and pieces for all the promoters and, and the sanctioning bodies. And of course, some exports that, that runs the series as well. It has not been easy. Um, so again, uh, just to recap that I, I think it's been pretty awesome behind the scenes that both sides have kind of taken their egos and what's best for them and tossed them aside and really tried to build schedules around what's best for the sport and to have some sort of continuity in this 2020 Supercross and motocross season. My biggest question is here, what happens if this May 31st racing plan for Supercross can't go? And I, when I, whether that's in Glendale, whether that's in Houston, Vegas, you know, on the side of the road in New Mexico somewhere, regardless of what they do, what if it can't happen, right? What if the federal government has to shut down or shut down the racing, right? Whatever possible scenario that could happen for us not to be able to go racing on May 31st. And then they have to go back to the September, October plan, which listen, I don't even know if that's a possibility now, you know, if this May plan can't happen, did they forego any chance of racing in September and October? I can't answer that. I would hope not. I would guess probably not because I think from what Feld has said publicly and privately, they are determined to get these seven rounds in at all costs. No matter what, in this 2020 calendar year, they have to get these seven rounds in. That's that's what the message they're putting out is. So with that in mind, if we can't go racing May 31st and this virus flares back up or it gets, it gets worse before it gets better, which is certainly possible with States reopening us all as a nation trying to regain normalcy, if it gets bad, 
what does that do to the outdoor series? Because the outdoor series is basically foregone their time frame to help supercross. So what does that do to them? If supercross decides we have to race in September and October, does motocross force themselves forward somehow, which I, I can't imagine they would be able to, if supercross can't race in may, I don't know how the outdoors are going to be able to race earlier, right? They wouldn't be able to move up to June because that's why supercross wouldn't be able to race. So I I'm sure someone's talked about it. I'm sure there are some, there's some sort of consolation or, or a plan right in place for that. But I can't imagine what it is. I would bet you that they're all just praying that this goes to plan and these tentative schedules, the last tentative schedules we've seen are the ones that actually are, you know, those are the ones that are actually played out. Now, what does that do to the rest of the year? Um, the outdoor series has, as far as I know, never ended in October. I, maybe it has, right? I, I couldn't tell you going back to the eighties when it ended. I'm sure it's on record somewhere, but I did not look it up, but I know in current modern racing, we raced into September. I remember racing on Labor Day weekend many times with, you know, early September at Steel City. And as college football came into the picture and live television for, for outdoor motocross came to the forefront, those two things collided a bit and, and we had to make the season end earlier so we could get live television coverage. Now with October, I don't know, maybe they just rely on the NBC gold app for that live coverage. Uh, maybe NBC sports will find time slots to put motocross in there, even in the face of, you know, the NFL and, and college coverage going on. Now keep in mind, NBC sports doesn't have NFL coverage. So that helps, but I also don't know what they're, do they have to cover hockey? Do they have to cover any soccer stuff? I, you know, I don't know where their contracts lie, it's just going to get very difficult to find time slots as other sports pick back up. You know, the, these networks all schedule their, what they can cover throughout the year based on seasonal sports. Well, if everybody's trying to fire back up in the fall when it's possible, that's going to leave a very small window for any time. Right. And we were getting, you know, we're getting four hour live television time windows. That's going to be tough. I think to, to still get. So we may be much more reliant on that app than we ever have been before, which is fine for me. No problem. Technology's great. You can screen mirror on your television. You can on smart TVs or Apple TVs. You can just use the NBC app on your television. Uh, you can watch it on your computer. You can watch it on your phone. It's not a big deal to me. It's all the kind of all the same. I know that for others, it is a big deal. They, they rely on it being on television and that's a big deal. Um, the challenge there is that for sponsors, it's a big deal. Uh, many, you know, the, the gold app doesn't have the same television, uh, exposure for commercials that a normal television show would, you know, that that's one of the benefits of the app is it's more coverage, less commercials. You don't miss any of the racing action, but for the sponsors that are spending big dollars to, show you their products on television, they're missing out on that opportunity. So what does that do to the series? If some of that television time is cut down and I'm completely speculating on all that, maybe it's fine. I would assume there have been conversations with NBC 
And maybe they have all this sorted out and it's all for naught. I don't know. But I, I can assure you that these conversations have to be had because that's how the business model is built, right? The, the series, whether it's Feld Entertainment for Supercross or, uh, you know, MX Sports or their, their marketing firm, they reach out to sponsors with a package that has television rights and everything that that sponsor is going to get attached to it. And they're, you know, the sponsors are promised X amount of commercials and <clears throat> X amount of engagements with customers and yada, yada, all the, the, uh, the asset package that they would present. So if that television package is interrupted or changed significantly, all that's changed. And, and those would present some very difficult conversations to have with sponsors if it's negatively impacted. So just something to keep in mind, another wrinkle in the million wrinkles that this coronavirus has caused for racing is timing and, and television, you know, all the things that we take for granted, all those things could be back up for grabs and battling with other sports to get on television for. So that sounds like where we're at for the USA side of things. Start May 31st, rip through seven rounds pretty quickly. I would bet that tries to end June 21st. If I had to guess, uh, that, that would be a, the finale would be on Sunday, the 21st that would give just under two weeks before red bud for teams to get ready, which has kind of been the plan all along. It's the typical schedule. If you think about it yesterday should have been the finale at Salt Lake city. We would have an off weekend coming up this, this weekend coming up. And then we would go to Hangtown to kick it off. So the same amount of time for teams and riders to have off before they would go outdoor racing. They would race all the way through the summer. I don't. I haven't looked at the amount of weeks that they would have off, but I, I bet it would be a pretty brisk series. Usually there's a few weekends off, maybe not this year. Uh, we haven't even gotten all of the, the dates yet for which rounds or when. I'm sure that's an ongoing talk. But they would wrap October 3rd, as we said. I do not know the status of the Monster Energy Cup. I guess if we're done October 3rd, that would allow that event to still happen. I don't know. Um, that The dates are locked in. The question that I've heard posed was if the Major League Soccer uh, schedule is negatively affected, which I'm sure it probably already is, would they need that Saturday night date at the stadium there that uh, in Carson, California that we're currently sitting on? So we'll just have to play that by ear. In my mind, Monster Energy Cup is uh, not a big deal. It's fine. I'm sure a lot of sponsors love that event and, and everybody wants to go. I always have a great time. But in the big picture, the the whole scheme of things for this season, the Monster Energy Cup seems like a an also ran. If we have to cancel it, so be it. If it works out, great. Count me in. Uh, so we'll just see how that plays out. Now, I want to talk a little bit about something I have been glossing over lately, which is the MXGP series. I've been talking to Lewis Phillips a little bit, and I listened to the MX Vice podcast. Those guys uh, do a great job. I actually write a little bit for them, and I would highly suggest listening to it if you're interested in MXGP. They're pretty plugged in. But it was interesting. He did a uh, an interview with David Luongo who, if you don't know, is Giuseppe Luongo's son. So they own uh, the Ustream company, which has been bought by Infront. And yeah, so there's been a little bit of a change at the top there, but they, Giuseppe and, and David Luongo, they, they run the series, you know, plain and simple. They are, you know, they were bought, but they are still, uh, as far as decision makers and how things go, 
they're the end of the line. So it was pretty cool to hear some of David th- David's thoughts on the series. As of right now, they're planning on going racing July 5th in Russia. Now, as I'm sitting here, I just saw in the news that Russia had a pretty big spike today of COVID-19 cases. So I've heard a lot of also people speculate that there aren't many tests being done in Russia. So that number has been much lower than realistically it is, right? So, and we all know that the more people are tested, the higher ratio of people are, you know, that ratio goes hand in hand. The more people tested, the more people you're going to find out have it. So I think there's a lot to learn about Russia in the next two months, right? We're, we're literally two months away from racing today in, uh, in Russia. I think it happens just knowing the way Russia (laughs) kind of doesn't care and, and, you know, don't come after me, Putin for that, but they seem much less concerned with things like this. And that's not a good thing. But if you're trying to go racing as a series and you're, and the government could be one of the things preventatively in your way, I don't see Russia as, as being that type of issue. Again, I'm not educated. I'm not a, uh, diplomat or anything like that, right? I'm just armchair quarterbacking this thing, but I am hopeful that those guys get to go racing in, uh, on July 5th in Russia. That's still the plan. They've changed their schedule several times. And I thought it was a good idea by in front to come out this week and, and say that they would not be updating the MXGP schedule week to week, which we've seen, we've seen Ustream do that in the past, right? They, they are not scared of a press conference. They are not scared of press releases time after time with just multiple changes. I think Infront has adopted the policy that, hey, we're just going to leave the schedule as is, and then we'll update it uh, all at one time, right? If, if there are sweeping changes throughout the series, we'll do that all at once instead of you know just constantly making changes that nobody can keep up with. So again, we'll see on that, you know, obviously Europe is a much different dynamic than the American series. Uh, they have different countries. Riders are all scattered across these different countries and some of them can travel. Some are not allowed to leave their house. So it's a really different situation for, let's say a rider, uh, Anton goal, right? He lives in Sweden. He's been able to ride every day. He's been training, riding, doing everything normally, where if you were a rider living in Italy, you've been locked in your house. You by law have not been able to go out and train and ride. So if Anton Gold needed to go racing tomorrow, he could. If Tony Cairoli, if he's in just outside uh, Rome at his home, he can't do anything. So it's, it's a very challenging dynamic to get all of those riders in the same spot to go racing when they have to cross borders and deal with different government guidelines. So that would be the most challenging aspect, I think, to me is if you're in front or you stream and you have to make a decision if one or two riders are not allowed to attend the race because either they're sick or their government won't let them leave, do they go ahead with the race? I don't know. I can't answer that. That's a really difficult spot to be in. Uh, and we're just going to have to play by ear, right? We still have some time, but the days are are counting down, right? I remember sitting here speaking with you six weeks ago, right after Indianapolis was canceled, sitting at home, just flown back from Indy and 
back then we were like, Oh, no big deal. We'll be racing in no time. Right. The, the plan was to be racing March 28th in Seattle. And then that turned into, yeah, we'll be back. sounds like we're going, you know, racing in May. Now we're at May 31st. And obviously we've seen how badly some of the world has, has suffered over the last six weeks. So just something to keep an eye on. I really hope that I still get to go to some of these MXGP events. I was originally scheduled to go to Majora in what, 10 days from now. Yeah. I left May 13th. Originally I would go to Italy, uh, commentate alongside Paul Malin for the Majora MXGP and then come back, uh, be home, go to some outdoors, maybe here and there, obviously do my full-time job, which is managing fly racing. And then go back, um, go back to Sweden in August. Steve Mathis and I, we're going to go to that race, which is still scheduled for August. So maybe we can still do that and go to Udavala, which I was lucky enough to commentate last year, come back home for a few weeks. And then I would spend approximately two weeks in Europe for the final MXGP at Imola in Italy, and then, uh, hang out in France and Italy leading up to the motocross of nations in Ernay, France. And please baby Jesus, don't cancel that because I really want to be able to go on that trip. Even if it's, uh, you know, I don't know what the state of Italy will be like at that time, but I really am looking forward to spending a week or more, uh, in Europe in September, going to Rene and going to Paris and doing all those things again. I've had it circled on my calendar for a year, basically since I got the green light from, uh, you know, the MXGP brass that I could do that race. So I'm very hopeful, uh, bringing that back around Dave Luongo went on to say in his interview that the motocross of nations was a 99% go. And it seemed that the only way that they would not go ahead with motocross of nations was if France completely shut down the event due to a flare up. Now the hopeful side of that is the tour de France, which we know is its own economic sphere. I mean, it, it literally is its own economy. They have rescheduled to September. Typically that's a uh, July event. They have rescheduled to September because there is a ton of economic uh, influence and the ripple effects are far and wide if that event can't go at all. So for them to reschedule to September, I thought was very promising for having the motocross of nations in September as well. The big questions are, what do those events look like, right? If, if you've ever watched the Tour de France, people are just packed all over the roads, all together. I mean, it's there is no such thing as social distancing for the Tour de France if you're there watching in person. So I don't know what the regulations will be. I guess we'll just have to, to wait and, and follow their lead. But that also means what does it look like for Motocross of Nations? Because I have been to many of those events, and they are unbelievable. To be honest, the amount of people, the atmosphere, the just excitement about motocross is just overwhelming. And it's an event that I highly recommend if you were ever able to go and Redbud was obviously a great opportunity and it rained the whole time, but a motocross of nations event in Europe is just something that I think every motocross fan should treat themselves to at some point in their life. Ernay is right up there with some of the best. 
it's in a beautiful part of the world, uh, Normandy, where, you know, D-Day happened is about half an hour, I'm going to say, from the track, something like that. So you can take in some culture and learn about our country's history while you're at the event is awesome. <laughs> it's funny, speaking of Redbud, I was at the museum. Uh, there's a D-Day museum there and, uh, and went into the restroom in the museum and I run into Tim Ritchie, who his family owns Redbud. And, uh, just, you know, happenstance, we're all there obviously for, um, across the nations, but, uh, highly recommend going to that event. I just really hope it happens in any possible way it can. And I, I hope I'm able to attend. Um, and I was really excited to hear David Luongo be so optimistic about it. Now that brings up another question is, does America attend? Uh, I, I don't know what that looks like, right? If we're, if we're still racing, our motocross series in, you know, the finales in October, October 3rd, does MX sports work around that? I, I would think they would want to, do they leave an open date on the calendar for September 27th? So we could field a team. Now, even more challenging is I can't imagine we're going to get our best possible team to go, right? You, you assume our best possible team would have championship contenders on the team. And if they haven't wrapped up the championship by that weekend, there's no way they're going to go, they're going to fly to France to race the motocross of nations with the title on the line the following weekend. So even if we are, even if we do have an, an off weekend, if that works out, we're going to have some sort of secondary team. And what I hope doesn't happen and, and what I have to kind of be careful with my comments here because I think it would be a cool opportunity for some of these guys. But what I think would be a bummer is if we sent a team like Darian Sinai and uh, Thomas Covington because they're already racing the MXGP series, right? I I really believe that's a disservice to America having a chance to be on the podium or win. And yeah, things have to happen, right? Nothing about this 2020 season of racing is going to be perfect. This is not going to happen. Everybody's going to have to make sacrifices and compromises every step of the way. But that event holds a special place in my heart, as I'm sure it does for many of you. And if we send a team with virtually no chance of real success, it's just kind of a bummer. Um, But again, I, I will be happy to go even if the race would be a little bit of a letdown for me personally, being an American, the experience of it, getting to go to France, uh, Steve Matheson and I just have a great time every single year. Um, just taking in all that culture and scenery and, and everything about it. I, I just love everything about that event. So hopefully there is a way to get a very competitive team, if not our best team over there in late September. And that event goes off as planned. So yeah, different uh, a different deal this year, right? The normally we're arguing about if Tomac's willing to go and these guys and teams don't want to spend the money. That seems like no big deal at all <laughs> compared to all the hurdles we have to go through this year. This year we got we have competing series going on and you know COVID nineteen to worry about and will guys even travel to France? That's another thing. Would would riders be willing to go to France if? It's a much more difficult dynamic than here. I can't answer that it would be. It might be just as dangerous traveling here. We don't, we don't really know. 
Um, but yeah, it seems much more problematic to send an American team than ever before. I'm hopeful though. Please American team, please go. So, um, let's talk about the sponsors a little bit. Pirelli tires. Uh, I will be giving away a set of Pirelli tires next week. So send in some questions and, uh, I will choose at my discretion, the best of those questions. And there are no guidelines to give away a set of Pirelli tires. Uh, so you can go out and do some riding. Speaking of that, I was on my bicycle this morning and there were so many dirt bikes in the back of trucks heading out to go trail riding. <laughs> I was just pointing every time I saw one, I would point to my buddies because it seriously was every other car, which is awesome because we need people riding. We need to support the sport and get people out on dirt bikes and buying parts and supporting sponsors. So it's cool to see. Um, but yeah, thank you to Pirelli. They've had my back from the very first conversation I had about this podcast. Blenzol, my buddy, David over there, he, uh, emailed me this week with some more exciting news. So the free tea promo code will get you a free t-shirt with a case of oil that has been extended until May 16th. So use the free T promo code when you check out to get your free t-shirt. The other cool thing you think, I thought this was a great idea. You can build a mixed pint case now. So instead of just like, Hey, I need, you know, uh, a case of, uh, 460 or I need a case of ultra or whatever, Maybe you don't need that much of one particular item. You can build what you need now, right? So if you needed one bottle of power boost or five bottles of ultra, you can build your own case and get exactly what you need. So you still have to do 12 bottles in the case. And then on top of that, the case itself gets you an automatic 10% discount. And then on top of that, if you use the promo code ship to racer, you get free shipping. So a lot going on there. Re-listen re, re to this a couple times if you need those promo codes, but the free tee is for the free t-shirt. 10% on a case uh, gets that automatic discount, and then promo code SHIP2RACER will get you free shipping. So I was excited to hear that David's getting more and more involved in the sport. Uh, they're sponsoring some events this summer. We'll see if they are able to happen, like 2020 AMA Motorcycle Vintage Days. And he was super involved in, you know, the day in the dirt South and uh, a lot of the two stroke championship stuff with Michael Lessie, but all those things have kind of been put on hold. So we'll see what happens, but you're going to see that Blenzol logo pop up more and more. And I'm doing everything I can to, to spread the word because again, I like passionate people. I like aggressive marketers and yeah, David falls into that category. He really wants to do a good job. A reach customers. And, you know, in the end he's putting his money where his mouth is, you know, he's giving out discount codes. He's sponsoring podcasts. He's sponsoring racers all in an effort to win over hearts and minds. So great job to David. Great job of him getting blends all back involved. Works connection. I've been telling you guys about Eric Phipps and the crew over there. They've been building parts for your motorcycle for what? 30 years now. I think 1991 was kind of their, uh, they jumped onto the scene Steve Lampson was the first one to join the fray, but since then they've been sponsoring teams, you know, factory Honda, RCH, they, they were, they've been all over. They've been all over my bikes. I posted a, uh, a video on my Instagram today, whole shotting Hangtown in 04. I was running works connection. So if you just look back over time, the products are proven on the track. If you go to their website, worksconnection.com, go on their Instagram, you're going to see products you didn't know that they had, and you're going to see products that you need. 
Perfect combination. So check it out, worksconnection.com. Plum Creek Funding, Zach Morris has been answering my annoying questions all week as this housing market is all over the place. The the rates are still down. I saw the average rate was like 3.23%, which is the lowest. Someone was saying ever, but I don't know if that's true. But if you have questions on refinance, maybe you're looking at buying a house. I've been kind of wait, waiting for these housing prices to, to dip a little bit. It seems like they've been rising steadily for the last seven or eight years. Call them up. Ask them some questions. See if there's an opportunity for you to save some money on the house you already own or the house you're looking at buying. His phone number is 720-212-4685. And if nothing else, just make fun of his last name. His name is Zach Morris, like Save by the Bell. And then ask him how he can save you some money. So reach out, Zach Morris at Plum Creek Funding. Good people over there. Premier Vapor Blasting of Georgia. I'm telling you, if you go on their Instagram and check out the products that they work on, they're uh, in the restoration business but they do it a little bit more safely than some of the traditional methods you've seen. But seriously, I, it, without fail, and I told you guys this a bunch of times, I look at the parts that they get in the mail to restore, and then I watch what they do, and then they do the after pictures, and I'm like, come on, that has to be a brand new part. Like, There's no way you could turn something around that well, but they do. It's, uh, it's amazing what modern technology can do. And, uh, yeah, so check it out. Premier vapor blasting on Instagram. And I promise you it's going to open up your world to something that many of us didn't know existed and how much technology can help in restoring old bikes. And again, I, I've kind of talked about this every week, but for some of you newer listeners, you know, this whole coronavirus has given people more free time to either get that old bike restored and out on the, out on the track, or just giving people more time to ride in general. Well, companies like these, whether it's Worst Connection or Premier Vapor Blasting uh, or Blendzall can all help in that effort to get you back riding. So they all work together very nicely. And then finally, Fly Racing, obviously the company I work for every day. I will be, I get to go to the office tomorrow, which is normally not that exciting of a proposition, but I haven't been there much. So I am excited to get back and see the team. Uh, but you know, it's a company I truly believe in from head to toe, right? From the design team to the marketing team, to the sales team, which I'm in, we all work together to try to do a great job for customers. And it's not only about the products. It's about believing in what we're accomplishing, right? We, we set out with goals, right? The formula helmet, we set out with a goal to create the safest, most technologically advanced helmet in the world bar none. And I can honestly say sitting here that I believe we did that. And that's how we're approaching all of our new items. We have some really exciting things coming out for the 2021 line, uh, that you'll see that probably August one, depending on how this coronavirus goes, but just some of the items that we're innovating and coming out with are super exciting for me to watch happen. You know, I've been there seven and a half years and I think we're really hitting our stride now. We're coming out with better, newer, safer items now than we ever have before. And that, that's been a lot of work and a lot of people's dedication to accomplish. But I believe our best days are ahead of us. And I'm very excited and blessed to be a part of such a great team. So I appreciate you uh, listening to the sponsors. Uh, please support them. Even if, you, if it's not the right time for you to buy right now, 
go check them out and learn something. Maybe you will buy something in the future and maybe you can choose one of these sponsors when you're ready to buy. So moving ahead, uh, we've been doing this story time each week, which has been fun for me. And I, I really appreciate the feedback I've been getting. Uh, I'm sure some of it's boring, right? It's everybody has their own stories of their life. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to share some of mine and I've been very fortunate, right? I've traveled all over the world and I just gotten to see and do things that I understand a lot of people haven't. Right. And, and I take it for granted sometimes, but I shouldn't, I really should not, um, getting to race in all these countries. And I've been to Europe. I don't even know a hundred times, 125 times. I don't know how many times I've been right in Australia, New Zealand and Hawaii and, uh, Tahiti and South America and all Africa everywhere. Right. I, I, China, Japan. Um, I've just been to all these countries and I don't even remember half the time I have to actually think that I go there. Yeah, I did. I actually did go there. Um, so it's, it's been fun. And a lot of that was in my racing days, but then a lot of it's been in my fly racing days. And the story I have today is about how I came to work at fly racing. And I was this morning, I sent out a tweet asking for questions that I would answer on this podcast. So I'm going to do that after I do the story of how I got to fly. So let's hop in the time machine and go back to, eh, let's say 2010. That's a good place to, to start this off. Now, some of you may know or have heard of Terry Baisley. Fly racing was Terry Baisley's idea. And that's going back to the late 90s. Uh, this is right when I was starting to turn pro, he had been involved with some, uh, gear and apparel companies before then. And, and he knew that Western power sports had the means and the distribution and just the whole package to do this well over time. So he presented the idea to, to uh, create fly racing and off they went. And it was a very slow beginning, right? They started with uh, helmets and handlebars and, and slowly worked into apparel. But going back to the very beginning, this was all Terry Baisley's idea. And what I remember from Terry is he would always be at the races. He was the one that was negotiating with the teams, right? So when he sponsored uh, Subway Coca-Cola Honda that I was a part of, it was Terry doing the deal. And when he would have to negotiate with Forrest Butler when I was racing for Butler Brothers MX, which is now Rocky Mountain KTM. It would be Terry negotiating the deal. So I always knew that, you know, Terry was the man with the plan. And Terry is the vice president of sales for Western Power Sports. So there are, he does have a boss, which is Craig Shoemaker. And it's also my boss, who's the owner of the company. But Terry has a lot of pull, and rightfully so. So Terry came up to me in 2010. I was wearing fly racing on forest team and asked me what I thought about, you know, joining their team one day. And keep in mind, I was 31 at the time. And, and we both knew that there, you know, the end was on the horizon for me as far as my racing career. I didn't know when that end was. I, I honestly wouldn't have been able to answer you in 2010. I was still doing pretty well that, that season. I had not really had any drop off in performance, especially that year when we switched to Suzuki's. So I would have probably pushed Terry off a little bit in that conversation, 
more of, yeah, 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 that sounds like a plan, but I'm nowhere near ready is how I would have probably approached it. But I do remember Terry making the first, you know, kind of taking the shot across the bow there. And, um, I was receptive to it, just not in a near term time frame. But again, those early conversations laid the, the groundwork for what would come later. So fast forward to January of 2012, I'm coming off of knee surgery from 2011. Uh, Stu landed on me at Houston in 2011. Many of you will remember. And that was kind of the beginning of the end. Um, you know, I have knee surgery in May. I turn, uh, 32, uh, that June. And it was just really hard to ever get back up to the form that I wanted to be on. I just never really found the same level and, and it was a lot more work and, and taking, you know, four or five months off at that age was, was difficult to rebound from. And on top of it, my heart just wasn't an, it wasn't as in it as it was before. So the 2012 season was going horribly. Uh, the first round we couldn't get the bike run and I wasn't riding well. And it was just a, a really, really bad January in 2012. And I kind of made the decision like, listen, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to race this 2012 season because it's all I know how to do. And the only way I know how to make money, but for all intents and purposes, this is it. I I don't even want to be out here anymore. So I reached out to Terry and said, Hey, uh, I think it's time. I think this 2012 season is going to be my, you know, curtain call here. So can we start working on how to incorporate me into the WPS family? And he was obviously super receptive, but there wasn't an immediate answer or plan, right? It was kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, let's figure it out. And that was a little scary, but at the same time we're January and I know I'm going to be racing all the way through that season and probably through that off season as well to try to go make some money in Europe. So I wasn't super worried about time as I was just, let's get the conversations rolling. So I raced through the supercross season, everything's fine. Um, and then I start pressing the issue a little bit more as we roll into summer and I kind of came up with my own plan. Uh, I wanted to be an, an outside rep in Florida. And if you're unfamiliar with how like Western power sports works, we have a large number of outside reps across the country. And I deal with those guys every single day, right? They, they are the tip of the spear for me selling fly racing into dealers across the country. Well, that seemed like a good plan for me to do. And many of you will remember Brock Sellers. He used to race. Well, he is exactly that. He is a Western power sports rep in Ohio, and he goes into dealers in his territory every single day and sells all of the brands that Western power sports distributes, including fly racing. So that seemed to make the most sense. And a lot of racers have transitioned to that job over time. What I liked about it was it worked into the life that I already knew, right? I could build my own schedule, which I had always done for racing. I could still travel on the weekends to go to the races, which I really wanted to do. I I wanted to maintain that racing lifestyle that I had. I didn't want to race. I just still wanted to be there whether it was writing for racer X, which I still do to this day, or any of the, the, uh, business ventures, you know, the, we do the VIP program for the Rocky mountain KTM team, which I handle, uh, all those things would allow me to still do those on the weekend with this position. 
So that seemed like the easy answer. Terry was a hundred percent on board. Well, Jim Chester, who is the regional manager for the Southeast does, you know, he, he does the hiring for that position. So called Jim and met with him in Orlando while he was down there. Uh, he was actually seeing accounts with his rep in Orlando, had dinner with him. And, uh, we kind of built a preliminary plan. The problem was there wasn't an open territory. He thought that maybe there would be a change made through retirement or just repositioning that would allow me to join the team somewhere in the greater Tampa area. That was tentatively what we had working. Now, a few weeks later, that rolls into a month and nothing's really happening. And Chester's kind of pushing it off, right? And and I didn't really know what to make of it. Kind of, I was (laughs) probably bugging the crap out of Terry about it because I just wanted to get something locked down. Um, in the end, I ended up talking to, uh, Jim Chester and Terry, and they basically just let me know it wasn't going to work out with that, that position. And, um, I didn't really understand at the time I was really bummed and I don't think I was really mad. I was just frustrated because I knew I could, I knew I could do a good job. I knew somewhat what that job entailed. And I thought i fit the bill for how to be successful in that position. Well, the things I didn't know was at the time we were really struggling in the greater Tampa area with business wise. And Jim was scared that I would join the team. It wouldn't go very well. And I would quit. And that would be the end of my venture with WPS. And that's what he wanted to avoid at all costs. And that's what Terry really wanted to avoid because Terry even told me to my face is like, I, I want you to start here and retire with WPS, right? I want you to be a lifelong WPS guy, but we need to find the right position and the right area for you. If it's a rep, if it's not a rep, whatever that entails. But at the time for me, all I heard was, Hey, sorry, you didn't get the job. You know, I didn't, there wasn't even a job hired. So it wasn't like I, there was someone chosen over me. It just, that particular situation didn't work out. So Terry calls me separately later and says, Hey, listen, uh, I'm going to find a position for you. You've just got to be patient with me here. Uh, that wasn't the right spot for you. And you're going to have to trust me because you can't see all of the entanglements and the dynamics around it. You're just going to have to take my word for it that I'm looking out for you. And we're going to figure this out a better spot than that. And you know, again, I'm like, okay, trying to not be disappointed, but I also trust Terry with my life. You know, he's, he's always, he's that guy that always does what he says he's going to do. And you can always trust that he has your best interest at heart. And, and I just, I had to just take that for what it was and understand that I, I wasn't able to see the whole picture and move on. So that was July. We roll into August, still nothing season ends. Um, and then September I'm, I'm getting antsy, right? The, the season's over. My racing career is done. I, you know, or tell the team I'm done. We have a big celebration at Elsinore. Uh, it's over, you know, I, I'm going to race that off season in Europe again to make some money, but for all intents and purposes, my American motocross and supercross racing career has come to completion. So finally one day, Terry calls me out of the blue and I'll never forget. I was driving to Starbucks in Tampa. Uh, I don't remember what, if it was just to kill time, but, but it was the off season, right? I was just going to get an iced coffee and Terry calls me out of the blue and says, Hey, you got a minute? And I'm like, I have a lot of minutes for you, Terry. And he says, well, I've got an idea. 
and an opportunity for you. That's going to seem like it's coming out of left field, but hear me out. And you know, at this point, you got to keep in mind that I've been waiting for two months for any news, right? Any good news. And my future economic position, financial situation, everything is, is kind of riding on figuring something out here. So I'm all ears. And Terry says, listen, you know, my focus for the last, let's say 15 years has been on fly racing, both domestically and internationally. And I need to take a step back from that. You know, they were launching this hard drive division, which is the Western power sports V twin division. So all of you Harley riders out there will know what that is, but he was tasked with getting that hard drive brand off the ground. So he needed people to pick up the slack for fly racing domestically and internationally. Well, I didn't know that in 2010, Bob Lowry had been hired to run domestic sales for fly racing. That was the first step of Terry kind of handing the fly racing reins over. Now, Bob had come from Scott Goggles for the past 16 years and is, he's an absolute industry legend and true professional. Well, so I, Terry's kind of explaining this to me and says, I, I need somebody to handle the international side and to be able to go visit these accounts. You know, we have international distributors all over the world that are in charge of selling fly racing in their brand. I don't have the time nor I just, I can't do it anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to travel, you know, 250 days a year and see all these accounts and spend a week in South Africa and then go immediately to, you know, hop across the ocean and go to Brazil and Argentina and then spend a week at home and then go back to Europe. You know, that's what he had been doing for the past decade plus. Well, he needed somebody to do that. And he knew that I had traveled all over the world. I was able to handle myself in difficult situations where you really have to kind of think on your feet a little bit and be willing to experience new cultures, uh, without having to hold my hand. That, that was the biggest thing, right? Is he kind of explained to me, listen, I can teach you the business side. You've been wearing the brand for a long time. So that some of that's going to come naturally. And I can teach you what you don't know, but what I can't, and I don't have the time to teach you is how to be an international savvy traveler. And I already had that. So that, that's what really made the fit work so easily. So obviously the biggest variable there was you're going to have to move to Boise. And he kind of dropped that on me at the end because everything was like, oh man, so great. So great. Such an awesome opportunity. I love traveling. I love seeing the world. It's, you know, what I've been doing for the last 13 or 14 years already. And then the Boise thing, I was like, whoa, like I just never even considered moving to Boise before good or bad. I I've been there one time. I, and, and we stopped at a truck stop on our way from Seattle to Vegas. And I was like, oh, wow, this is Boise. I've heard about it, but that's it. So that, that was the extent of my Boise knowledge at all. So that kind of blindsided me a little bit. And I didn't know what to think, right? I, I'd always lived in Florida my whole life and I loved living in Florida. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to leave. And so I basically told him like, hey, this is an awesome opportunity. First and foremost, thank you very much for even thinking of me in this capacity that I could do this and believing in me enough that you would give me this opportunity. That let's start there. Secondarily to that, this sounds amazing. And I really want to tell you yes, but I need time to think because 
I have a house here and I have a life here and I've, I've never even considered not living here. So I, I, I need to think about this before I answer you anything that I'm going to regret. So he says, oh, you know, no, no problem, but we need to sort this out quickly. And I said, I totally get it. Give me 24 hours to make a decision. And I felt like that was pretty fair. Just give me till tomorrow. Let me sleep on it. So <laughs> I think I, I called my parents. I called a couple of my friends and said, you know, what do you think? I remember calling Steve Mathis and everybody was like, what are, are you stupid or something? Like, why didn't you just tell him yes immediately? And so, yeah, I think I called him back two hours later and said, listen, I don't know what the, the financial, you know, um, considerations are. I don't know what it pays. I don't know anything other than we'll figure it out. So don't ask anybody else. Don't even get your mind going about who else could fill the spot. I'm in, we'll figure out the rest later. So consider me hired. We'll sort out the details later. I don't have to worry about whether I can trust you and Western power sports. That's never been a question. I know we'll get to where we need to be on all of the details. Just consider me in and let's move on. So he was pumped. I was pumped like awesome night. Just so excited. And then it was just like, holy crap, I've got a lot to do. And we agreed I'd move there like six weeks later and it was just wide open. So, um, yeah, I had to, you know, move out of my house and move to Idaho. And I remember I flew out here where I'm sitting in Boise right now. I flew out here, uh, went to the office to see where my desk would be. Got a tour of the building. It was my first time ever to Western power sports. I borrowed a vehicle to go downtown to sign my lease. I had been doing a bunch of research of where to live and, and talking to realtors. So I signed my lease, went to dinner with Terry and Max, who I'm, you know, obviously super close with to, to this day. And I flew home the next morning, just in and out really quickly. And, uh, so got everything in order, shipped my truck, shipped all my furniture, everything out here and came back for the monster energy cup in 2012, just to, uh, to go watch the race and, and hang out. And then I flew immediately here on Sunday, ready to go to work on Monday. And you want to talk about having your mind blown as far as not knowing anything about a job. That was me that entire first week. And I would say even longer than that, I didn't know 1% of the things that I needed to know. And I'm sure that was to be expected on some level, but if Craig or Terry or Bob Lowry or anybody that, you know, were basically my mentors could have been in my head that first week, they would have been terrified at how scared I was because I, I, everything that was coming out of their mouths, I either didn't understand, uh, needed to be repeated. Some of the things I was just completely lost on because it was all the business side of, you know, being a brand and it's so just built into my vernacular now, you know, almost eight years later, but at the time it was a completely different language and a different world that I'd never seen before, you know, sorting out margins and producing a catalog and line changes and close out timelines. And there was just endless amounts of things that we don't have time for in this podcast, but just imagine the most clueless dumbest person you've ever encountered in your life. That was me for the first few months of, of working there. So I basically went to my bosses at the time and said, listen, uh, I don't know a lot, but 
I do believe if you put me in front of these people that I can sell pretty well. I, I have a talent for doing that. And I was confident in that. That was the one thing I believed I could do. So I told Bob that in side note, Bob, little did I know at the time went in and just lit Terry up for hiring a stupid, dumb racer. I think he put it because he's right. I didn't have any education other than high school. I had a, you know, high school diploma, I had two years of college, but an industry professional who had all he had ever done was, you know, manage brands, manage distributors. You know, he was the manager of motorcycle stuff going way back. He was a manager for Scott goggles for 16 years. He had been managing domestic fly racing sales at fly for two and a half years at that point, looking at me and how ignorant I was, he was probably disgusted and he was really angry at Terry for hiring me because he had basically an idiot, you know, under him that knew nothing that he was going to have to try to teach everything. So <laughs> I didn't know that at the time either, but I remember going to Bob and just saying, listen, I don't know a lot of this stuff, but my biggest, I do know enough that my biggest asset to you is just send me on the road so I can go sell. So we built a plan and I flew all over the place. I went to Chile and South Africa and all over Europe and um, to Ontario, Canada, and all across the USA, uh, anywhere and everywhere that we had distribution at, I would go get in front of them and work on increasing sales, expanding the line, everything that I'm supposed to do. So I remember that first year I flew 273,000 miles. And for any of you that fly out there, you know how much flying it takes to do that. But I knew that's what I was good at, or that was my real value to Western power sports and fly racing at the time, I was not smart enough or seasoned enough or experienced enough to give really good advice or make unilateral decisions on line plans or any of that stuff. I, I did not have the base of knowledge yet to do that. I, I, I would not have trusted myself to even give an opinion yet. Uh, so I, I did where I could give value and over time, you know, I earned Bob's respect and he taught me almost everything I know, you know, between he and Terry, I mean, those guys taught me everything and just kind of grew into my position. So a year or two in to that, um, I was starting to show promise and absorbing everything I could possibly learn. And, uh, basically we had an opportunity to bring in Bruce Perry, who was coming over from one of our competitors and he had, he's a long time international distribution manager. At that same time, uh, Bob Lowry was beginning to work on his exit strategy to move back to Sun Valley where his uh, full-time home is at. So that was a, a huge step for me because they basically began a plan to insert me into managing domestic sales and having a, a much firmer hand on the direction of the brand. You know, and I was all in at that point. I just, I was more scared because I knew I wasn't ready yet. And if they had just been like, okay, you have to start today. This is yours. I would have failed miserably. I just didn't know enough yet. But thankfully Bob's exit plan has, it's kind of still ongoing. He's, he's still around. Um, you know, he's not in the day to day capacity that he was, but we worked hand in hand to get me to the point where I knew enough. And we brought on Cole Seabor as well. And now we are fully executing that plan where, you know, Cole and I are making day-to-day -day decisions on 
what the brand is and where, where we're headed. Uh, Bruce is still there too, handling the international side. And, and we have built a very strong team. Uh, Cameron Coltrane came on with us. Jeff Northrup, some of you will remember from his racing days, is down in Southern California, and he's on our team. But yeah, it was just um, a long process to get from there to here, and a lot of learning and a lot of patience on everyone's end to have me learn, right, or, or wait on me to learn. And um, now it's basically I have to do everything I can to repay that favor. And, and for Craig and Terry and Bob and all these people that, you know, they are facing retirement in the next, you know, few years, we have to carry on that tradition and make sure that that fly racing exceeds everything that it's been and grows into the brand that we all, you know, dreamed at some point that it could be. Uh, and, and I promise you that we are working diligently every day to accomplish that. So, that's kind of how it came to be for me. But, uh, <laughs> the biggest thing I can leave you with there is I don't know how much more I could explain the lack of knowledge that I had when I first started. I did. I spent so much time on the internet, just trying to teach myself, right. Trying to learn how to figure margins and net profitability and a bit, uh, and all these things that you know, business school would have taught me, but I didn't, guess what? I didn't go to business school. I went to general education and, you know, in college, but they didn't teach, you know, I, I didn't get a business administration degree. I didn't go get uh, an MBA, right? So those are, would have been very helpful, but I also would have sacrificed my racing career and I would have never gotten hired. If I just walked in there, you know, somebody that had never raced before had zero background, I would have, I wouldn't have the job that I have now. So have to be careful with what I wish for on that because I was given an opportunity that I wouldn't have had otherwise. I just had a very tricky first year of making sure people didn't understand how clueless I was. Um, but I, I'm sure that Terry and Bob and those guys, they knew, right? They're, they're not dumb. Um, they just had to wait for me to catch up. And I remember Terry, my first week there, sitting me down and saying, listen, the first anywhere from six months to 18 months is going to be a complete investment on Western power sports part, right? You're not going to have a lot to give because you don't know enough. You know, we're, we're going to be investing in you for the long term. And he was so right at the time. He was more right than I even gave him credit for being. Luckily I was able to travel like a madman and go sell and really get our international sales going in the right direction. Those first couple of years, and I believe my ability to do that was what allowed me to get the opportunity to take over domestic side with, you know, Cole and I running that now, um, my ability to sell in front of people and learn quickly, I think gave them the confidence to offer me, you know, that, that exit plan when, when Bob was ready to leave. So they've all worked hand in hand, very lucky. Um, I was very, you know, like I said, fortunate to get the opportunities, but I also, really tried to take advantage of the opportunities in front of me and work tirelessly, uh, to make sure I didn't miss out because I, I knew, and I know to this very day, if I, if something happened and, and our company was dissolved or I lost my job or, you know, who knows with this coronavirus thing where the industry is going, it would be very difficult to get as good of a situation as I have now. So I need to make the most of what I have and the opportunities I have every single day.
so anyway, that's a little bit of how I came to be at fly racing. Um, I also mentioned that I was going to answer some questions today. So let's get into a few of those. Uh, let's see. <laughs> my buddy Ronnie Monk asked me, what's my stance on online poker? Uh, I hate it. I cannot stand it. I think that it's very rigged. I do play it with my buddy sometimes, but, uh, if anyone's been around me while I play it, you will know that I cannot stand it. And I curse its name every single day. Um, another guy that's dark side, many of you know, asked me who I could ride with. If I had the choice, would it be Cole Seaborg or Damon Bradshaw? You know what? I don't know. Bradshaw is so damn dirty. And if you guys think that, you know, him racing in the nineties and he was taking out chicken all the time, that was just him being young and young and dumb. No, that's him to this day. He still rides like an a-hole. So I'd probably rather ride with Seaborg, although Seaborg and I were super competitive and he rides much better than I do these days. So I'd probably be pissed off that he was so much faster than me. So final answer, I'd probably rather ride by myself so I could pump up my own ego and tell myself how fast I am still able to go. So what else see what else we have here? Will Tomax baby extend his career? And this is from Garrett Scobie. Uh, he's mentioning obviously Reed and Brayton and those guys. It seemed like when they had children, it really revitalized their careers. I don't think it's going to go that way. I think it's going to go the other way. I think that Tomac is on his way out. Uh, I think he'll race this 2020 season, obviously. And then I think he races 2021. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's it. And I don't have any evidence to prove that. It's just what I happen to believe. I think he is accomplishing everything there is to do, especially if he's able to win this Supercross championship in 2020. You look at his career, really, what else is there, right? This Supercross championship is the one glaring absence. And if he's able to get that done, don't be surprised if 2021 is it, right? He's in his late 20s. He's married. He's just had a child. He has all the money he'll ever need. And I think he has other interests. I think he has plans of opening some sort of uh, like hunting sports goods type store in Colorado. He loves to go hunting. I he loves all the outdoor stuff. So I could see him stepping into something else pretty easily and, and walking away. Uh, so we'll see, but I, I don't think it's going to go the way of, of Reed and Brayton racing into his mid thirties. Uh, Mike Kurtz asks, why is Chad Reed putting in so many laps? According to social media, he may be the most active SX rider. You know what? I don't really think that's the case. I think that everybody is out riding. You just don't always see what's happening on social media. Uh, like Cooper Webb and Zach Osborne are hammer down right now, putting in laps. They are, they're getting after it. Uh, Roxon's riding Tomax and Colorado riding just don't always go off of social media for the work that's being put in, right? There's a saying that if it's not on Strava or Instagram, it didn't happen. Eh, not so much in training. Um, these guys know that racing is most likely coming back May 31st. So they are, they're, they're all in right now. You know, the hard work that you'd typically hear about in November, December, that's happening right now every single day throughout the week. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to hear Chad's doing the same, but I think that's pretty much the norm throughout the industry for all the riders right now. Uh, Steven Grenier asked me, Fly Racing USA sponsors te Texas Tornado Boot Camp, which we do. It's Colin Edwards' program there in Texas. Have you had the chance to go there? If not, would you like to? 
I would love to go there. Uh, we had an event there a few years ago and a bunch of our regional managers and reps were there. And if you've never seen this, Colin Edwards, for, former MotoGP star, has a kind of a course, kind of a camp thing they do there where it's flat track mostly. He has motocross tracks too, but most of it's flat track in this, uh, it's basically a ginormous pole barn and they're on, you know, XRs and TTRs. Maybe it's all TTRs. Um, I don't want to ruin anything for his sponsors there, but they all basically practice and race throughout the week. And he teaches these guys how to ride and, and increase their skills on flat track. So to answer your question, I have not been there. Would I love to go? I absolutely would love to go. For me, it's just always, I'm on a time crunch all the time. You know, if I'm not traveling for work, I'm at a race. And if I'm not doing either of those, I'm probably resting inside my house trying to recover so I can go back to doing those things. Um, I hope that Western Power Sports could have another event like that where all the, the managers and everything go because that would be the perfect storm for me. Get to go with my friends and coworkers. Um, but yes, I, I do hope to go there someday. Brady asks, please talk about your love for winners take all the Rocky movies and all this, all the great training videos we made. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a sucker for motivational stuff and whether you're talking about like the movie rad or the Rocky series or winners take all, all those are super motivational type movies, right? It's a fighter or a racer or some sort of person chasing a goal and putting in all this hard work to get there. And you know, every, for sure, every professional racer, but everybody pretty much can associate with that, right? You have these goals and for a professional racer, it's your livelihood and everything you've worked for since you're a little kid. So you can identify with that theme so well. And they usually have these awesome soundtracks that live forever with you. And, and, you know, I, I could pick out any song from any of those movies you named and immediately tell you the movie and the name of the song and the, all the lyrics to it and everything else. So yeah, I definitely have a soft spot for, for stuff like that. Uh, DJ pickle asks, I've always wondered what a rider's diet is like. What's a normal week, week to week diet for an elite rider. That's a little bit different for everybody. If you are, uh, in the Alden Baker program, it's pretty strict. They are very careful. I don't think they have any dairy allowed in their diet at all. Uh, they are very low carb diet. Uh, I think sometimes they do keto at some points of the season, which I do. I do keto myself, but it's, it's very strict for that program. Uh, I've seen other programs that are pretty loose, right? And, and I think that has to be a little bit tailored to each person's body. And if you go back and you remember a lot of the reasons that Adam Cincerillo and Ken Roxon left that Baker program was over the diet. They felt like they were basically starving themselves and they didn't feel as strong as they wanted to be because they didn't feel like they were getting enough carbs and enough calories to be strong. Now, Alden believes in power to weight, right? The lighter you are, the more efficient you are, the you know, wattage and all the energy that you're going to be able to put out versus your weight. Right. And that, that's a heavy bicycle and, and MotoGP too. Right. Uh, but very much bicycle way of thinking, uh, the more efficient you are, the lighter you are and the more energy you can put out, the, you know, stronger you'll be. I don't always know about that with motocross. It's, it's hard to argue with Alden's results, but I don't think it works for everybody. 
take a guy like Kenny, right? Obviously, if you follow Kenny on social media, you'll see how fit that that guy is. Shredded, right? His legs are super vascular, but I don't think his diet is all that strict. Um, he, he eats healthy, don't get me wrong, but he's not on the same level of restriction that he was on on Baker's program. He will have some things that Alden would not let him have now, right? If he wants to go to Chipotle, he will. If he wants to have ice cream sometimes, he will. I think it works better for him than maybe Alden's program does. But keep in mind that Kenny is genetically very gifted to where he's not going to gain weight if he eats kind of what he wants to eat. Some people, that's not the case for it. Like if you look at Zach Osborne, if you look at Brock Tickle, if you look at RJ Hampshire, those guys train their butts off, but it wasn't until they got on Alden's program that they really got to their leanest, right? Talking to RJ Hampshire the other day on Fly Racing Instagram, he lost like 15, he said somewhere between 15 and 20 pounds, depending on the day on Alden's program. And RJ is a incredibly hard trainer. So it wasn't like he was slacking before it was mostly diet and he got super lean, super mean. And you saw how much better in supercross he was this year. I mean, he, he was a guy that was really inconsistent and he went to a guy this year that was battling to win races. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out for him this summer for the outdoor series being, you know, he's coming off a knee surgery now, but it it seems to work for him. And that's just an individual decision everyone has to make. I know for me, I think I ate too much. I ate everything and anything in front of me. And this is, you know, going back to a time where, where nutrition and racing wasn't as considered as important. Uh, I just wanted calories because I trained a lot. I rode a lot and I wanted to be strong on the weekends. That was always my thing is no matter how much I train and work during the week, I need to be at a hundred percent on the weekend. So I would I would take in a lot of calories to make sure that I had fuel all the time. And I I think I was heavier. Well, I know that I was heavier than I probably should have been. So as we sit here today, I'm probably 155 pounds. If I really wanted to get light and stop lifting weights, I could probably get down to 152, 151 pretty easily. Well, let's not say easily because my diet's super strict, but, um, I'm heavier because I've been lifting weights than I would be on my diet anyway. Um, but when I was racing, I was 165, sometimes 170, but that was from all the calories I was taking in. I was burning a lot, but I think it blew people away. Sometimes I know Clark styles used to, (laughs) when I first met him, his friend came up to me and said, yeah, man, styles would always be telling everybody how about how much you ate all the time. Like he, he was like, you were a human vacuum and he's probably right. I ate a lot. I mean, I would go to dinner and eat, you know, a salad and a main meal and dessert and, you know, bread at the meal. And it just constantly, right. And then a snack, but after dinner at home and just, but I didn't care. I knew the work we were doing and I just wanted to have that fuel inside me to, to go back and go training again, right or wrong. That's how I did it. I'm much more strict now. And I I think nutritionally I would have approached it differently knowing now if I, if I knew that back then. Um, but kind of, wandered all over the place with your question, but I think most people are pretty strict. I think keto has probably been accepted by a lot of people. The challenge with keto is you don't take in carbs. So it's some people's bodies don't work, right? They need that 
those carbs to be strong. So they do, you can do some keto cycling and things where you take in carbs on the weekend to give you that boost of energy. Uh, but that's probably what I would be doing if I was racing now. <laughs> Stephen Kane, should I start an OnlyFans account? I don't know what that is. I guess I'm getting too old. Uh, I've heard about it, but I, I don't know much about that OnlyFans. It's, I'm probably, uh, somebody's probably saying, okay, boomer into their radio right now, but I don't know what that is. Uh, JT Hughes asks, after seeing Rhino's Hawaiian success, have I moved a couple chicks into my house and started doing yoga? Rhino is something else, man. If you guys listen to him on the Pulp MX show, if you follow him on Instagram, I don't know what to think. I mean, he's clearly living his best life. He's in Hawaii. He's working out beachside, making out with chicks. I don't know what the guy's up to. I think he has mostly lost his mind. And I don't want that to sound harsh, but I do worry that he's kind of gone off the deep end. I don't know what else to make of it other than he's clinically insane. But hey, if he's happy and he's not harming anyone else, more power to him. Do what you got to do. Um, I just, I worry a little bit. I mean, that's one of the legends of our sport and he doesn't seem as, as good as he's doing. I mean, you make a great point JT Hughes, but it's, it's a little scary to me. I I've, I've seen too many Dateline and 2020 shows start out with the way Rhino's going great racer goes off the reservation, moves to Hawaii, lives off the land. And then something very, very bad happens on all those shows. So let's just hope it doesn't go that way. Fuzz Sanders asks, what do you think JGR does next year as, a, as far as a manufacturer goes? Interesting question. Um, let's just hope JGR sticks around, right? It's been pretty touch and go for them. With them not having a title sponsor, it was really challenging. I don't. Obviously, we don't think Suzuki will be the sponsor for them next year. They didn't even think they were going to be this year. They just were contractually obligated to. I would say the most likely is either uh, – you know, gas, gas, they could be looking to branch out. It's obviously uh, a pretty easy fit, right? They're a very professional organization and they need the help. So that seems like something that could happen pretty quickly. Uh, other than that, I don't know. I think, um, you know, they don't have to necessarily have an OEM support them, right? When they, you remember when they started the team, they were on Yamaha's and they had basically no help. So the biggest ingredient of that is having a title sponsor. If they have a title sponsor, I think the rest of it can be sorted out. Even if they had to buy bikes, they have the technological know-how to build a very competitive bike. Uh, it's just about being able to fund the whole operation. So, uh, I appreciate the questions trying to sort through here and see if there are any more. Um, Trevor P asks, how many countries have you raced in? What of those countries has the best looking females? Uh, I looked at, say I looked it up. Um, I counted a year or two ago and I think I'd raced in around 40 countries. I think that was the number I came up with. It's somewhere around 40. That's a lot. And you know, some of those are, are small, you know, you start counting all the countries in Europe, you know, Belgium and France and Spain and England and Luxembourg and Italy and, uh, just go down the list, Sweden and Finland. And you're, you know, obviously talking Scandinavia there, but then, start adding in Estonia and ones that I, I have a hard time remembering at times, obviously Guatemala, I told you guys about, um, Mexico, Tahiti, 
Australia, New Zealand, Canada. Uh, it, it starts adding up pretty quickly, but pretty staggering number for me to even think about. Uh, which country has the best looking females? You know what? I think it's probably Sweden and they're pretty tall, which is not the greatest thing for me, but, uh, very attractive people in Sweden, guys and girls. Just, you just don't see a lot of poor looking or, or you don't see many people that aren't attractive and good for them. (laughs) I guess it's awesome. That's a great thing to be associated with a country, but I'll, I'll go with Sweden. Final answer there. Uh, I think that's the last of the questions here. Um, oh, one more question. This is a pretty good one. He's adding on to that other one. He basically says, which country would you have not liked to race in? So a country that I went to, to race, which I wish I hadn't gone, man, I don't know. Um, yeah, obviously that Guatemala story was pretty crazy, right? Uh, that was a situation that could have gone very poorly for me. You know, Oscar Diaz, passed away doing that same thing that I was doing could have very easily happened to me. The guy that brought me down there, Fritz, you know, murdered a year later could have very easily happened to me, but it gave me such great memories. And I learned a lot from that situation. So I don't think I would take it back. Right. It's, it's live and learn type situations. And I, my experience wasn't all that bad other than my wallet and camera getting stolen. That sucked. Um, man, I'm trying to think of somewhere that just from beginning to end was terrible. All, all, everything about it. Um, I don't think I have one. I I think I really try to take something, even if something really bad happens, you know, you have to learn from negative situations. So I don't think I have anything. I think I would, if I had to do them all over again, I think I would, um, Again, that comes back to feeling very fortunate for the opportunities I've been given. I will say two races that didn't go well, that I probably, it was, it was just for the money and I shouldn't have done them, but yeah, I, I mean, that's why we race is to make money. Uh, I did a race in Montreal and I've raced Montreal a bunch, right? I won it twice. I think I had six podiums there over the years. So it was a race I was very familiar with and in 2011, coming off of knee surgery, I got offered a decent amount of money, the most start money I ever got there, to race a Kawasaki coming off a of knee surgery. And I was not ready yet. And on top of that, I didn't race Kawasaki's. I had never even ridden a modern Kawasaki, but I had to go race one in Montreal way before I was prepared to race. But I needed the money. I hadn't raced in months and months. And, you know, um, basically no income. So it was an attractive offer. So I did it and it was just a struggle all weekend. I didn't have my mechanic, uh, which was Dan Truman. Nothing went right. Um, I rode terribly. I think I got like 11th, which was by far the worst I'd ever done at that race. And it was just so frustrating. And my sponsor was frustrated and just everything about it because I, I didn't do well, right? I was being paid to get on the podium, which I had done a lot there. And I wasn't ready and I certainly wasn't ready on a Kawasaki. So bad decision, but yeah, desperate times financially. And then the other one of those, I raced in Sweden at the end of the 2008 season. And I was definitely prepared for that race, but the situation was that Nico Izzy had pulled out at the last minute. 
Teresa Suzuki, obviously he was factory Suzuki. So it was pretty good money that they were going to just give me his deal. And, you know, I, I raced a Honda at that time. I'd never raced a Suzuki in my life up to then, but I, I definitely wanted the money and I wanted to go to Sweden and everything about it sounded amazing. You know, Jim Holly had put it all together and it was super smooth, uh, program, but yeah, going to race a race against really good guys. I mean, Andrew short was there and, uh, just, you know, guys like Brock Hepler, there was a lot of talent at that race. It wasn't, was, wasn't an easy one to go in and clean up. So I go there, I ride the bike in practice. It's fine. But I think I got like eighth place, which wasn't ideal, right? I, I should have been in my mind on a Honda. I get third, maybe, maybe third. It would have been, it would have been close third or fourth. No way I get worse than fourth on a Honda at that race. But yeah, on a Suzuki, with no suspension, literally all I took was handlebars. Yeah. It's not going to go real well. I'm not going to be at my best. Um, so I was very frustrated. The only upside, <laughs> I remember Cole Seabor was there. He got, maybe he got third. I think he maybe got fourth, but I made like five times as much money as he did. So, <laughs> but that was why I rode the Suzuki. That's why I took the deal, but I didn't handle those situations very well. Like if I didn't do my best, I was just pissed off regardless of the money. I just, really was disappointed in myself in those situations. So, uh, in hindsight, emotionally, not the best move. I probably should have said, no, pay me to ride a Honda and I'll do well for you. But I, I knew that they had all their money tied up in Andrew short Honda did. Um, I think they gave him like 30 or 40 grand. So they had no money for me and Suzuki was the only deal. So I took it and rode poorly, got a bad result, was pissed off. Didn't get invited back the next year because my results sucked. So yeah, it's, that's, that's really the, the bottom line of it is I knew to get races like that, you need to do well. That's how I built my reputation in Europe to get paid more and more and more was to go win and podium races and going and getting eighth, whether it's on a Suzuki or whatever you're on, doesn't matter. You have to get the results. So then when other promoters see that they know you're in good investment to come to their race. So anyway, uh, sorry, very long winded answer to that question, but thank you to everybody for listening this week. I really appreciate it. I hope we can get some racing going back here soon. Uh, I have fun telling you these stories, but I would much rather be talking about the racing on the weekend, but I do think it's around the corner. Thank you to all the sponsors for making this podcast possible. Thank you for all everyone that listens to this for tuning in. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's all about fun and, and entertainment while we have no sports, we have no racing, and hopefully that's for the short term. Thanks again. Talk to you next week. See you.